Chapter Sixteen of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Sixteen. There it was then, this island, which Antifer valued at four millions or more, and he would not have taken sixpence off, even if the Rothschilds had proposed to buy it of him. To look at it was but a naked, barren mass, without verdure, without culture, a rocky heap oblong in form, and about two thousand yards in circumference. Its shore was capriciously indented, here capes, there creeks, and no great depth. Nevertheless, the perm found shelter in one of the creeks, which opened to the west and was sheltered from the wind. The water was very clear. The bottom could be seen twenty feet down, a floor of sand strewn with submarine plants. When the Berbera was moored, the very gentle undulation of the surge hardly moved her. But little as it was, it was too much for the notary to wish to remain a minute more on board. He had dragged himself along the deck, he had gained the bulwarks, and was just about to jump ashore when Captain Antifer seized him by the shoulder and roared in a voice of thunder, Stop there, Mr. Ben Omar. I go first, if you please. And whether he liked it or not, he had to wait until the intractable captain had taken possession of his island which he did by forcibly impressing on the sand the sole of his sea-boots. Ben Omar was then allowed to join him, and what a long sigh of satisfaction he gave when he felt the ground firm once more. Tregomaine, Jewel, and Saug were soon at his side. All this time Sleek was looking about him, wondering what the strangers were going to do on this islet. Why such a long voyage? Why so much expense and fatigue? To make out the position of this heap of rocks could hardly be the reason unless these people were fools. And although Antifer seemed somewhat of a madman, Jewel and the bargemen were evidently in the full enjoyment of their reason, and yet they were assisting in this exploration. And then the two Egyptians mixed up in such an adventure. Sleek had more reason than ever for suspecting the proceedings of these strangers, and he was preparing to leave the vessel and follow them onto the island, when Antifer made a sign that was understood by Jewel, who said to Sleek, There is no need for you to come with us. We have no need of an interpreter here. Ben Omar speaks French as if he were a native of France. It is well, was Salik's reply. Annoyed though he was, the detective did not enter into any discussion on the point. He had entered Captain Antifer's service, and it was his business to obey orders. And this he resigned himself to, resolving to intervene with his men if, on their return from their exploration, the strangers brought anything on board the perm with them. It was about half-past three in the afternoon. There was plenty of time to take possession of the three casks, if they were in the indicated place, which Antifer did not doubt. It was agreed that the Berbera should remain in this creek. At the same time, the captain, through Salik, informed Jewel that he could not stay more than six hours. The provisions were nearly exhausted. It was urgent to take advantage of the easterly winds so as to reach Sahar at daybreak. Antifer made no objection. A few hours would be sufficient for him to bring his operation to a close. What had he to do? not even a search over this very small island, yard by yard. According to the letter, the precise spot where the treasure was deposited was on one of the southerly promontories at the base of a rock, recognizable by the monogram of the double K. The pickaxe would soon reveal the three barrels that he could roll on board the perm. He had arranged to work without witnesses, save the indispensable Ben Omar, whose presence was imposed upon him, and his clerk Nazim. As the crew of the Berbera would have nothing to be anxious about as to what the barrels contained, 
the return to Muscat by caravan was the only thing that presented any difficulty. But that could be dealt with later on. Captain Antifer, Tregomaine, and Jewel in one group, and Ben Omar and Nazim in another, began to climb the slopes of the island, whose mean altitude measured a hundred and fifty feet above the level of the sea. A few flocks of sea ducks flew off at their approach, quacking out their protests against the intruders who were violating their home. Probably no human being had set foot on the island since the visit of Kamalik Pasha. Antifer carried his pickaxe on his shoulder. He would not give it up to anyone. The bargeman carried the mattock. Jewel indicated the course, compass in hand. The notary had some difficulty in keeping in front of Saouk. His legs still shook, although he no longer had the perm's deck under his feet. But we need not be astonished at finding that he had recovered his intelligence, forgotten the trials of the voyage, and thought not of the return. The ground was pebbly. Its surface was not easy walking. In working round some of the hillocks that were difficult to cross, the center of the islet was reached. When the group had attained the culminating point, they sighted the perm with her flag fluttering in the breeze. From this point, the outline of the island was easily visible. Here and there were a few promontories, and among them was the cape with the millions in it. There could be no mistake, for the will indicated that it ran southwards. Jewel recognized it immediately by the aid of the compass. It was a long, barren tongue beaten by the light foam of the surface. And once more the thought occurred to the young captain that the riches buried under the rocks were about to rise as an insurmountable obstacle between his betrothed and himself. Never would they triumph over their uncle's obstinacy. And envy, a cruel envy which however he overcame, tempted him to send his companions astray. The bargeman was in agony between two opposing feelings. The fear that Jewel and Anagate would never be married, and the fear that his friend Antifer would go mad if he did not lay hands on the legacy of Kamalik Pasha. And in a sort of frenzy, he struck the ground so violently with his mattock that splinters of rock began to fly about him. Hello, bargeman, exclaimed Antifer. What fly is biting you? None, none, replied Dragomane. Then keep your pickings for the right place, if you please. I will keep them, my friend. Then the group went southwards towards the promontory, which was not six hundred yards away. Antifer, Ben Omar, and Souk, now in front, hurried along attracted as by a magnet, the magnet of gold, all-powerful among men. They panted as they went. They seemed to smell the treasure at a distance. They breathed it in and breathed it out. They were filled with the atmosphere of millions, and would fall asphyxiated if that atmosphere left them. In ten minutes they had reached the point which ran out into the sea, and it was at its end that Kamalik had marked the rock with a double K. Antifer's excitement was such that he fainted. If Tregamine had not caught him in his arms, he would have fallen in a heap. The only signs of life were a few spasmodic starts. Uncle! Uncle! cried Jewel. My friend! cried the bargeman. Saouk's expression no one could mistake. It said as clearly as possible, May this Christian dog die, and I shall again become the sole heir of Kamalik Pasha. Ben Omar's physiognomy appeared to say just the contrary. If this man dies, and he alone knows where the treasure is, away goes my commission. But the accident had no such sorrowful result. By the bargeman's vigorous rubbing, Antifer regained consciousness and seized hold of the pickaxe he had dropped. And then the exploration began at the beginning of the promontory. There was a narrow causeway sufficiently raised for the high tide not to cover it, even during southwest winds. It would have been difficult to have found a better place in which to bury the millions. To recognize the place was not difficult, 
providing that the storms of the Gulf of Oman had not in a quarter of a century weathered away the monogram. Antifer would have searched all over this promontory if necessary. He would throw over the rocks one after the other, and spend weeks, even months, at his task. He would let the perm go back to Sahar for provisions. He would not abandon the islet until he had torn from it the riches of which he was the legitimate possessor. And Sauk was of the same opinion. And now they were all at work, searching, forging under the clumps of algae between the interstices of the rocks coated with seaweed. Antifer tapped about with his pickaxe on the loose stones. The bargeman attacked them with his mattock. Then Omar crawled on all fours like a crab among a shingle. The others, Jewel and Sauk, were quite as busy. Not a word was spoken. The operation was conducted in silence. It could not have been more silent if it had been a funeral ceremony. And was it not a cemetery, this islet lost in the gulf? And was it not a tomb they were seeking? A tomb from which they longed to disinter the millions of the Egyptian? In half an hour they found nothing, but they did not despair. That they were on Camelis Island, and as barrels were buried on the promontory, they had no doubt. The sun blazed down on them. Sweat poured down their faces. They knew no feeling of fatigue. They worked with the ardor of ants in an anthill. All, even the bargemen in the grip of the demon of greed. All but Jewel. At last a shout of joy, or rather the roar of a wild beast, suddenly resounded. It was Captain Antifer who had uttered it. Upright, with his hat off, his hands stretched out, he pointed to a rock rising like a stella. There! There! he shouted. And if he had prostrated himself before the Stella, like a Transteverian before the niche of a Madonna, not one of his companions would have been surprised. He was soon joined by them in common adoration. Jewel and the bargeman, Souk and Ben Omar, gathered round Antifer, who had just knelt down. They knelt near him. What was there on this rock? There was what the eye could see and the hands could touch. There was the famous monogram of Camelake Pasha, the double K rather eaten away at its edges, but still visible. There, there, repeated Captain Antifer, and he pointed to the base of the rock, to the place where the treasure buried thirty-two years ago slept in its coffer of stone. Immediately the pick came down on the rock, and the splinters flew. Then Tregomain's mattock knocked off chips of rock and chips of concrete. The hole began to get bigger, to deepen. Chests panted, hearts beat ready to break. An expectation of the last blow which would cause the millions to burst like a spring from the entrails of the ground. And still they dug, but the barrels did not appear. Evidently, Kamlik had dug a very deep trench. He was not wrong, after all, and what did it matter if it took a little time and a little fatigue to unearth them? Suddenly, a metallic sound was heard. Doubtless, the pickaxe had encountered some sonorous object. Antifer knelt over the hole. His head disappeared in it while his hands dug into it greedily. He rose. He held in his hand a metal box, not above four inches in cube. They all looked at him, unable to hide their feelings that they had been deceived, and doubtless Trigman expressed the thoughts of all when he exclaimed, If there are four millions in that, may the... Silence! vociferated Captain Antifer. And again he felt about in the excavation, picking at the last fragments of rock, seeking to meet with the casks. Labor in vain. There was nothing here. Nothing but the iron box on the side of which there stood in relief the double K of the Egyptian. Had then Captain Antifer undergone such fatigues for nothing? Had they come all this way to be a sport of a mystificator? 
Joel would have smiled if his uncle's face had not frightened him. His eyes were as those of a madman. His mouth was contracted in a horrible grin. Inarticulate sounds escaped from his throat. Triggermane declared afterwards that at this moment he had expected to see him fall stone dead. Suddenly Antifer rose. He seized his pickaxe, brandished it, and in a frightful access of rage struck a violent blow which shattered the box. A paper fell out of it. It was a piece of parchment, yellow with age, in which were a few lines written in French, and still legible. Antifer seized this paper, forgetting that Ben Omar and Saouk might hear and learn from him a secret it was his interest to keep. He began to read it in a trembling voice the first lines. This document contains the longitude of a second island which Thomas Antifer, or, in default, his direct heir, is to bring to the knowledge of the banker Zambuco, residing at... Antifer stopped his mouth by putting his fist into it. Saouk was sufficiently master of himself to let nothing appear of what he had just ascertained. A few words more, and we have learned what was the longitude of the second island, of which Zambuco had the latitude, at the same time where the banker lived. The notary, no less disappointed, stood there, his lips open, his tongue hanging out, like a dog dying of thirst just dragged from his saucer. But a moment after that sentence had been cut off short by the fist in the mouth, Ben Omar, who had a right to know Kamalik's intentions, rose and asked, Well, this banker Zambuco, where does he live? At home, replied Captain Antifer. And folding the paper, he thrust it into his pocket, leaving Ben Omar to stretch his despairing hands to the sky. The treasure was not on this island in the Gulf of Oman. The only object of the journey was to invite Captain Antifer to put himself in communication with a fresh personage, the banker Zambuco. Was this personage a second legatee whom Kamalik desired to reward for services rendered? Was he going to share the treasure with Captain Antifer? It looked like it. Whence the logical consequence that instead of four millions, only two would go into the pocket of Captain Antifer. Jewel bowed his head at the thought that this was still too much to make his uncle modify his opinion relative to his marriage with his dear Enigate. And, in fact, Jewel had divined what was passing in Antifer's mind. For what Antifer remarked by way of conclusion was, Well, Enigate will have to marry a duke instead of a prince, and Jewel will have to marry a duchess instead of a princess. End of chapter 16